1: Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Happy Friday, March 17th, 2023. 602-5080-960. 602-50, uh, 602-50-80-960. Sorry, I got uh, a little bit behind there. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, David. Got the whole team here today. Roy Tixier is a Democratic Party philosopher. You may not have heard of him everyone in Washington, D.C. has. He's one of those semi-public intellectuals that writes a book or a column from time to time that gets a lot of discussion in think tanks, at conferences, and on C-SPAN. A liberal's liberal. He has spent most of his career advising Democrats and telling them how to beat Republicans and how to become a dominant, how the Democrats can become a dominant party in America. He served everywhere from the Brookings Institution to the Center for American Progress. That penultimate line about spending most of his career advising Democrats on how to become a majoritarian party in America has never come to fruition, mostly because Democrats don't take his advice or not enough of them do. Today, he writes at his uh, Substack page an essay on how Democrats should handle the culture wars. And again, while right, his advice will not be taken. It will not be taken because it cannot be taken Texiera writes, Democrats have a host of vulnerabilities on culturally inflected issues ranging from crime and immigration to race, gender and policies around schooling. That is why Republicans attack them so vigorously on these issues. Republicans frequently overdo it, but that doesn't mean the vulnerabilities aren't real. There's a there there and smart Democrats know it. Democrats have basically, he says, three choices in how to respond to this problem. One, ignore Two, attack. Three, defuse. I was struck by all of this introduction. First, while Teixeira says Democrats are vulnerable on these issues, he is wrong to say that is why Republicans attack them so vigorously on these issues. Republicans attack the issues, these issues, when they attack these issues, because they are wrong, hurtful to children and other living things, and bad for America. Has nothing to do with the party. If Republicans stood for any of these things, other Republicans would attack them just as much, which is why you see, for example, Republicans attacking one another in primaries on issues of softness on some of these things, like crime or immigration. It's the issue, not the party. Second, I was struck by Texier's three choices ignore, attack, defuse because it closely, imperfectly, but closely, resembles what I've called the progressive Marxist dialectic. When common sense people discover a case of progressive social destruction, as in the sexualization or the racialization of our children, the pattern is for the left to at first deny that it is taking place. The cognate to this is to state that Republicans are exaggerating the problem, then when the problem is undeniably larger than even Republicans initially thought, the second element of the dialectic is to defend the program or policy. And finally, the progressive steamroller then tries to mandate it. Now, while tuxiera says that Democrats have mostly ignored and attacked Republicans for taking on these issues, he says the smarter thing is for them to defuse it. This would be somewhat akin to James Carville advising Democrats to, in his artful phraseology, get off this woke crap. Texiara then makes the case for why Democrats should diffuse these issues, and it's mostly advice on why they are out of the mainstream and generally losers with vast swaths of the American people. He writes, quote, the answer lies instead in option three, diffuse." This means moving aggressively to neutralize vulnerabilities in these areas by A, disassociating the party from extreme positions in their own ranks, and B, embracing a common-sense approach to these issues, which typically aligns well with both democratic values and public opinion. Still quoting, The diffuse approach relieves Democrats of the need to defend a multiple of unpopular controversial practices, thereby giving voters the impression That Democrats are unwilling to draw any lines anywhere against the activist left and allows them instead to occupy the moral and policy high ground against Republican attacks on common sense. Moderation, close quote. And therein lies the problem. The Democratic Party is not the party of moderation. Moderation. Just look at the response from teachers unions to the kinds of things Ron DeSantis was doing in Florida with regard to deracializing and desexualizing the schools. Look at the responses from the White House press secretary and the vice president and the governor of California. They all called DeSantis a racist, a white supremacist, a denier of black history and a grand censor. Look at how the entire warp and woof of the Democratic Party denied and then defended the censorship of scholarship they disagreed with on everything from COVID policies to investing in investigating scandals involving the Biden family. Look at how Joe Biden called the Republican Party, the party of Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis and Joe George Wallace. Look at how the chairman of the DNC called Republicans and still does the party of fascism and fear. These are not the rant- rantings and excesses of the fringe or from the fringe. These are verbal fusillades from the highest ranks that emanate from the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And at some point, it is going to have to be recognized from the Carvilles and Texieras that the mainstream of the Democratic Party is not mainstream, but extreme. Joe Biden likes to speak of today's Republican Party not being your father's or grandfather's Republican Party. He's wrong. It may not be the party of Gerald Ford or Arlen Specter or Nelson Rockefeller, but those elements and members of the party were always the outliers in the Republican Party. Our grandfather's and great-grandfather's and great-great-grandfather's party is the party of Abraham Lincoln, Calvin Coolidge, Barry Goldwater, and Ronald Reagan, and among that great furling ribbon— or unfurling ribbon, is a consistency that mutatis mutandis hewed to the same philosophical precepts in each age in which they were campaigning and trying to govern. Family and social values? The Republican Party was founded in 1856 and put in its party platform the language that slavery and polygamy were, quote-unquote, twin relics of barbarism. It also incorporated the Declaration of Independence, And ever since, it has been ardent in securing civil rights for racial minorities up and over and against the Democratic Party. It has done the same with religious freedom, and it has done the same with trying to adjust economic policy to enhance the working class's abilities to achieve and take part in the American dream. It has stood for the American dream. It did not and does not, like today's Democratic Party, Offer separate national anthems, support those who take a knee for the original national anthem, refuse to pledge allegiance or hoist an American flag. It does not like today's Democratic Party, even in Arizona, host Fourth of July parties that are titled F the Fourth, with the whole word spelled out. Today's Democratic Party has a governor in Arizona that is called Republicans White Nationalists. It has a party that turns a blind eye and deaf ear toward rioting and even hosts and boasts of a vice president who encouraged such rioting and helped fund the bailing out of violent rioters. It is a party that nominates and defends justices to the Supreme Court who will not answer the question, what is a woman? It is a party that supports efforts to encourage children to physically change their biological sex, and that supports concealing those efforts from their parents. Today's Democratic Party is a party that believes 1776 was not our founding date and that slavery is our national ethos of origin, not freedom and equality. It is a party that believes people should be judged for the most sublime positions, privileges, and immunities based on human beings' most crude characteristics, like their race— rather than their most refined and human characteristics, like their ability and their minds and their morality. It is a party that supports the legalization of dangerous drugs and the encouragement to try to use them safely rather than try to get help for addicts or support prevention so as to try to stop them from the enslavement of their souls and the destruction of their minds that such encouragement and use represents and activates. It is a party that thinks it just fine to teach five-year-olds to think and act out sexually with age-inappropriate lessons and behaviors, no matter what Roy Teixeira thinks about that being outside the mainstream. It is a party that believes it okay for men to compete in women's sports and at every age for men to enter and use women's bathrooms and showers and locker rooms. It is a party whose president spent an hour and a half, one-on-one, with one of the most absurdly ridiculous transgender women and social media phenoms while saying he doesn't have time to visit East Palestine or the border due to other important demands on his time. Today's Democratic Party is a party that wants to shovel hundreds of billions of dollars to the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world. It is a party that thinks we should have another official carbon copy of Iran or Syria in Gaza and the West Bank while stripping the rights and power of the United States' greatest ally in the Middle East, an ally that is as close to the United States in political and civil rights and freedom and foreign policy outlook as possibly can exist. It is a party that wants to boycott travel and finances to that country. Today's Democratic Party is a party that wants to secure other nations' borders with weapons, personnel, and taxpayer money, but does not want to protect its own border. It is a party that wants to strip First and Second Amendment rights from Americans, but wants to elevate beyond any limit Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendment rights to violent criminals. It is a party true to its origins that believes states and municipalities can nullify federal law. It is a party that wants gates, fences and armed security for itself in leafy and expensive suburbs, but does not want other Americans to have those same barriers and mechanisms of security and self-defense. Today's Democratic Party is a party that wants to give and has given voting rights to non-citizens. It is a party that believes American citizens must be mandated to take experimental vaccines multiple times to enter the country or for children to go to school or engage in social activities, even when children are not at noticeable risk for ill health or mortality from the very thing the vaccine is meant to prevent or mitigate. Today's Democratic Party is a party that believes it should pay people not to work and tax people to pay for the college education of others not related or even known to them. It is a party that tries to conceal the goings-on at school board meetings and curricula debates and discussions and will weaponize the FBI To put the fear of prosecution and surveillance onto those who want to exercise their First Amendment and federally protected and parental rights at those meetings. Today's Democratic Party is a party that believes human life at seven and eight and nine months can be sliced to death depending on the whim or choice of someone else. It is a party that denounces the notion of American greatness as some kind of unheard dog whistle while insisting that it does not believe there is anything special or great or exceptional about America. Today's Democratic Party is a party that does not believe, as Republican John Bingham, the author of the 14th Amendment, believed that we are, quote, one country with one constitution consisting of one people, close quote. The Democratic Party has never believed that. The Republican Party always has. So while the Roy Texieras and James Carvilles can try to get such a party to moderate, what they might consider as an easier effort is to re-examine all their silence and even support for their movement and party that slowly moved in these directions until it became enthralled to and with them. In the meantime, if they want moderation... Not for the sake of the victory of one particular party, but for the sanity and common sense and success of the country they say they love. They should just give up their Sisyphean tasks of trying to reform the obdurate and join the party of moderation, the Republican Party. I'm Seth Leibson, 602 We'll be right back. In his State of the Union speech, as well as in his budget, Joe Biden doubled down on his spending plans, adding even more to the federal deficit, which does not bode well for the value of your money. Joe Biden's disconnected view of the economy means there will be no meaningful steps taken to lessen inflation and lower interest rates. Your cash reserves and investments will be worth less, which is why I recommend calling the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group to look into safeguarding your money with the stability of gold, gold traditionally holds its value when economies fail, guarding against the destruction of inflation and the ruin of a recession. Don't let Biden's misguided economy wipe you out. Talk with the good folks at Midas Gold Group. Check them out at MidasGoldGroup.com. That's MidasGoldGroup.com. Or better yet, call them at 480-360-3000, 480-360-3000. It is open line Friday, 602 Anything on your mind uh, or that you'd like to inject here, feel free to uh, give us a ring. It is St. Patrick's Day, and um, Carl Cannon uh, writes that St. Patrick's Day 2023 um, is the day of the week when he reprises or reprises quotations meant to be educational or uplifting, and Today's lines, he says, are intended to be both, which is fitting as St. Patrick's Day is an interesting historic occasion as well as a day for merriment. Three years ago, good cheer was in short supply. The big St. Patrick's Day parades were canceled in Europe as well as the United States. Ireland's prime minister cut short his annual American trip, avoiding New York City. Capitol Hill was the scene of little drinking and music. As was true at bars and restaurants across the country, The Dubliner, Washington's iconic Irish pub, reluctantly closed its doors, not just for St. Patrick's Day, but for the foreseeable future. One by one, these closures and alterations in the cherished traditions and regular routines of our daily lives brought home the dimensions of the coronavirus outbreak. For college students and their families, it was the cancellation of classes, along with March Madness. For baseball fans, it was the suspension of spring training and indefinite postponement of opening day. For lovers of horse racing, it was the postponing, of the, uh, the postponing of the Kentucky Derby until December uh, September. But dispensing with such social pastimes was only the beginning. It wasn't just theaters, movie houses, and concert halls that closed. Also, Apple stores, libraries, gyms, swimming pools, dental offices. Americans were told by their political leaders to work from home, many of those who couldn't lost their jobs and livelihoods. Before it was all over, more than one million Americans were said to have lost their lives with or from COVID. Even those who were spared the health consequences of COVID-19 faced life-altering challenges. We know now what should have been apparent then that for millions of school children, remote learning is an oxymoron. The lockdown brought other medical challenges from delayed cancer screenings to mental health crises for those struggling with addiction, depression, or pain, loneliness, or loneliness. Those who live by themselves face particularly difficult hurdles. Human beings are social animals. It turns out we need each other even if we don't always get along, which is the real theme of this morning's homily which I'll illustrate by discussing the annual St. Patrick's Day truce between the two headstrong Pauls with partisan grievances. No, not Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi, Ronald Reagan, and Tip O'Neill. The heartwarming tradition of Ireland's ambassador bringing shamrocks to the White House dates to the last year of Harry Truman's presidency. Although Truman wasn't home when the first shamrocks were delivered in March 1952, the gesture eventually evolved into having the Taoiseach himself come from Dublin and personally deliver the famed clover to his American counterpart. In the early 1980s, House Speaker Tip O'Neill used the occasion to host a bipartisan lunch on Capitol Hill. It was domestic policy and not international relations that motivated O'Neill. His goal was the thaw in relations between himself and his fellow Irish-American Paul Ronald Reagan. I'm going to cook you some Boston corned beef, and I'm going to have an Irish storyteller there, O'Neill promised Reagan, according to the official House historian. I'll have to polish up some new Irish jokes, replied the gipper. That he did. I'll give you the rest of the story when it come. Right back. Let me put in a word for our friends at Y-Refi, which you've heard me talk a lot about. But if you still have questions about what it could mean to invest with them, give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. They will happily put you in touch with any number of local area investors who have done quite well with them. And think about your IRA. Would you like it to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the Fed or the stock market? You can invest with YReFi through an IRA or other qualified funds and keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. 888-YREFI-34 or online at investyrefi.com. Telling the St. Patrick's Day story from Carl Cannon today about Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, because there's an interesting thing I'm curious to see if you pick up on in this story. It began, it turned out that Reagan and O'Neill had some personal fondness for each other, though in O'Neill's case it was grudging. They, o- they often had the opposite kind of feelings, too. In their pitched battles over federal spending, particularly anti-poverty programs, Tip would sometimes lose it. Vicious and sinister were two of the adjectives the Democratic speaker applied to the Republican president. Tip also said Reagan was, quote, cruel to the poor and hogwild crazy. Once O'Neill even brought First Lady Nancy Reagan into the fray. Reagan could quit tomorrow, O'Neill said, and she would be queen of Beverly Hills. In late January of 1986, the two were at it again. You're insensitive to people without jobs, Tip fumed at Reagan in a pre-State of the Union meeting in the Oval Office. I thought in five years you would have grown. Hours later, the space shuttle Challenger exploded in the air. The White House asked the Speaker's office if the speech could be postponed, and Reagan made eloquent remarks to a stricken nation. O'Neill observed later that he'd seen the worst of Reagan and the best in a few hours' time. It was a trying day for all Americans, O'Neill wrote, and... Ronald Reagan spoke to our highest ideals, he said. St. Patrick's Day came just seven weeks later. By then, the nation had grown accustomed to the way these Celtic warriors could lay down their shillelaghs and put politics aside after 6 p.m. or really any time on March 17th. That St. Patrick's Day 1986 was an occasion that today's elected officials would do well to remember and to emulate. O'Neill had announced his retirement at the end of the 100th Congress and Fundraising dinner was held at the Washington Hilton Hotel. Bob Hope spoke, Ted Kennedy, Irish Prime Minister Garrett Fitzgerald, Gerald Ford, and, of course, Reagan. Gentle needling of O'Neill was encouraged as long as it was tempered with self-deprecation, and Reagan delivered both, as did Tip. I have traveled the nations of the world, O'Neill said, when thanking Reagan for coming. You see on one side of the hall the leadership and other side the minority, and they don't talk we have different philosophies O'Neill added looking at the president but i want to tell you mu- you much i ad- i want to tell you how much i admire you your charm your humor your wit sometimes when i get up in the morning i tell myself don't let it get you old boy when it was reagan's turn he quipped, to be honest i've always known that tip was behind me even if it was only at the state of the union address as they made each proposal i could hear tip whispering to george bush forget it no way fat chance Reagan then turned serious. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you know Tip and I have been kidding each other for some time now, and I hope this continues for some time to come. A little kidding is, after all, a sign of affection, the sort of things that friends do with each other. It may be said that Reagan and O'Neill weren't really close personally, and that which they did to each other was more than kidding. They were practicing serious oppositional politics, and yet there was mutual respect there and a determination not to dehumanize the other side. Mr. Speaker, I'm grateful you have permitted me in the past, and I hope in the future that singular honor, the honor of calling you my friend, Reagan said at the St. Patrick's Day testimonial. I think the fact of our friendship is testimony to the political system that we're a part of and country we live in, a country which permits two not-so-shy and not-so-retiring Irishmen to have it out on the issues rather than on each other or their countrymen. You see... When President Reagan spoke of friendship, he was really talking about something more profound, at least when it comes to self-government. He was talking about the importance of recognizing that in the American political context, those on the other other side of the aisle may be adversaries. They may be opponents, but they are not enemies. That's the very word used by the very first Republican president in his 1861 inaugural address. He also used the word Ronald Reagan would apply to Tip O'Neill. We are not enemies, but friends, Abraham Lincoln said. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. And that's the story Carl Cannon writes about the Reagan-O'Neill feud, using St. Patrick's Day as the springboard for it. Do you notice something interesting about it? Do you notice the most interesting thing about it? For all these pie-ins to that great cordiality and the nice things Ronald Reagan said about Tip O'Neill, you have a lot of awfully nasty quotes from Tip O'Neill about Ronald Reagan. That he was cruel to the poor, that he was hog-wild and crazy, that Nancy Reagan should be queen of Beverly Hills. You know what you don't have? No examples of Reagan saying that kind of stuff about Tip O'Neill. None. Zero. The friendship really went one way, from Republican to Democrat. The idea that Tip O'Neill was kind or decent or jocular with Ronald Reagan, it's just not accurate. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. In his announced budget, Joe Biden has doubled down on his spending plans. He's adding more and more to the federal deficit, and that's going to negatively affect the value of your money. His misprioritized view of the economy, Joe Biden's, means that there will be no real steps taken to lower inflation or interest rates, and your cash and investments will be worth a lot less, which is why I, Seb Gorka, and thousands of you who already use the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group know how great they are and how valuable they are to looking into safeguarding your money with the stability of gold from the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group. Gold traditionally holds its value when economies fail, guarding against the destruction of inflation and the ruin of a recession. So don't let Joe Biden's misguided economy wipe you out. Talk with good folks, the good folks at the Midas Gold Group. MidasGoldGroup.com. Website MidasGoldGroup.com or better yet, call them at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Never have I, um, in recent memory or really any memory that I can think of, seen so much about the spouse of the vice president um, as I have with Doug Emhoff, who is, uh, <laughs> is known as the second gentleman. Fine. I, that's, that's, that's fine. Second gentleman, Doug Emhoff. He was out the, uh, at the South by Southwest conference uh, this week in Austin, Texas, and he said he believes the, in an interview, he said he believes the hate that fueled the Holocaust is also found at school board meetings when parents confront leftist administrators. You imagine that. Imagine that. Parents showing up at school board meetings to discuss the curriculum or object to the racialization and sexualization of their children are akin to the hate that fueled the Holocaust, according to Kamala Harris's husband. Emhoff kicked off the conversation by bragging that the Biden administration is doing great, but quickly shifted the discussion to focus on his public campaign against hate and anti-Semitism. I remember when there was an uptick of anti-Semitism in 2017 and 2018. The New York Times and all the liberal lefties were blaming it on Donald Trump. Now that there's an even greater rise in anti-Semitism, is anyone blaming it on Joe Biden? Is anyone blaming it on His rhetoric of division and his rhetoric of hate, or these kind of totally disgusting, disanalogous comparisons of conservatives at school board meetings coming from the same angle as the hate, fueling the same hate that caused the Holocaust. I mean, my God, do these people have no shame? This is the same... Doug Emoff, who a week before was spouting off on toxic masculinity, remember what he said? Quote, we've kind of confused what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine. You've got this trope out there that you've got to be tough and lash out to be strong. Lash out, something no one who believes in teaching masculinity or the martial virtues has ever said. They create these chimerical notions— of what conservatives stand for, because they never bother to listen to what we stand for, or they just know a priori that whatever we stand for needs to be denounced and argued against in the most vicious of ways. Which leads me to this discussion of wokeism that we began yesterday. Uh, Samuel Mangold Lennett over at The Federalist has this just right. When was the last time you were called a racist? When was the last time you actually cared about being called a racist? Odds are you get called it quite often and care about being called it very little. And that's because – something we've talked about here, the detoxifying of that phrase, right? That's because lobbying accusations of racial bigotry at anyone who gets in their way is second nature now for the left – So when people stopped taking these accusations seriously, realizing it is simply impossible for everything to be racist, the left began decrying white supremacy, semantically invoking Nazism. When accusations of racism failed to coerce enough action, the left moved on to a pejorative with far worse aesthetics while maintaining the same message, accusing people and institutions of racism had lost its utility due to rhetorical inflation or what I call syntactical saturation, and the era of systemic white supremacy had begun. According to some, the conservative movement, the American right, writ large, are experiencing a similar ongoing dilemma with the word woke. Many suggest the word has come to mean nothing due to right-wing oversaturation, while others insist it has taken on a far more nefarious tone. Nevertheless, the question remains, why has the word woke become so problematic? On Tuesday, as we mentioned, Bethany Mandel, frequent guest here and the co-author of Stolen Youth, appeared on The Hill's uh, podcast to discuss leftism's role in damaging American families. And during the discussion, Joy Gray, co-host of the show Bad Faith, asked Mandel if she would mind defining woke, because it's come up a couple of times. And what followed was a brief moment of self-consciousness in which Mandel stumbled over her words a bit before offering a generally accepted definition of the term. Despite this, the moment was clipped and the author was lambasted as both a bigot and a buffoon across the web. The whole point of this exercise was to humiliate someone offering a coherent definition of wokeism that was insufficiently deferential to the whims of leftist ideologues. However, the attempt was unsuccessful. Dragging Mandel through the digital public square did not result in the typical groveling struggle session that has come to be expected whenever people explain their opinions in public, but it did inspire many to inquire, just what is the nature of the term woke? The, the term started to increase its prevalence in the early to mid-2010s, back when Black Lives Matter, referring, referred, to, referred to a hashtag, came up with the hashtag using the word woke. Not an organization— And when the hot-button social issue du jour was the legalization of homosexual marriage, you saw it again. Despite its original meaning used in common parlance simply to refer to personal vigilance, woke quickly took on social and political meaning, like how every other community uses specific language to signify in-group allegiance. Woke was used to inculcate oneself among the broader cause of the burgeoning leftist cultural hegemony and, by extension, the Democratic Party. The left gave us this word. They used it. It was their, shall we say, shibboleth to signal and virtue signal that they were hip with it. They got it. They were part of the club. But as the term became more and more associated with the party, it became less specifically connected with racial protest movements and more a word for supporting the party platform. Stay woke, the Democrats said. Stay woke was the T-shirt you saw at election rallies at Democratic candidate parties and conventions. I'll say something more about it in a moment. The idea that Republicans use the phrase derisively is untrue. We didn't create it. We didn't come up with it. We didn't nurture it. We didn't spread it. The left did. We're just criticizing it. I suppose you're not allowed to criticize anything the left comes up with. However, if you are a conservative and criticize something the left comes up with, um, you're a white supremacist. We'll tell you more about this in a moment. This uh, distillation on the word woke over at The Federalist is what I'm going through with you. It was a word created by the left and the Democratic Party. You saw T-shirts, Vote Woke, Stay Woke. Throughout 2020, it is undeniable that wokeism and the people who get protective of the identifying label woke have an influential presence on the political and cultural left. There was even a short-lived Hulu series, series titled Woke that chronicled a previously apolitical black cartoonist journey through the intersectional landscape of identity politics. And in 2018, Saturday Night Live poked fun at the concept of corporate fashion brands using wokeism to market schlock to well-intentioned hipsters. Wokeism came to define a movement so insurgent among the institutionalized powers of the left that even its vanguards, like Barack Obama and Hakeem Jeffries, who undeniably had a role ushering it in, bemoaned its rancorous presence and how it distracts from the Democratic Party's larger goals. This was something the Democrats fully embraced until they could no longer fully control the semantics around it. See my monologue earlier in the hour. Wokeism is simultaneously a persistent ideological framework and a general inclination. It depends on the person or institution in question at the time, but both rely upon a consistent smorgasbord of Marxian dialectics and ideological accoutrement gender theory, critical race theory, etc., that seeks to usurp the ideals of American, of the American founding and impose contemporary whims. The word has become a commonplace among the current-day conservative movement, as MAGA hats and other chants were at the 2016 Trump rallies. And this is, to be fair, totally warranted. What other slogany-sounding word really works as a catch-all for what leftism has become? Progressivism doesn't quite get you there. Sure, it would help if we had a more tactical approach to diagnosing and labeling each and every radical change introduced to our society at breakneck speed, but that's not how people work. The right canon should identify the unique threats of identitarian Marxism, managerialism, but its labeling all of these things might not be the most useful. Using woke as a catch-all label for radical leftism is effective. That's one of the major reasons why the left hates it so much. They lost complete control of the English language, having perverted it themselves, and the word they used to indicate their radicalism to one another is now being used to expose that radicalism to the rest of the world. And they hate it. They hate that we discovered it. Just follow the dialectic. They will deny that they invented it. Then they will say it's not so bad. And pretty soon pretty soon. They're going to bring it back again. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll have Pete Peterson joining us in the next hour. Happy St. Patrick's Day. We'll be right back.